0: So I want to share with you one of my favorite stories, perhaps my single favorite story about the power of relationships and spiritual community. And this is a story I've told uh, probably every 12 to 18 months. And so if you've been here since the very beginning, you probably on average maybe heard this 2.8 to 3.3 times. And well, you, can, you can tell me how many times you've heard it. But it's a story worth retelling. It's associated with a guy named Fred Craddock. ...who um, taught preaching for many years in a whole bunch of seminaries all across America. And he tells a story about one point he was traveling through the South with his uh, with his wife. And they had stopped at this little sort of Southern joint, like the Pig and Whistle or something like that. Although someone at the 930 who grew up in the South said that's not an appropriate Southern joint name at all. So you can decide what it is. But they stop and they decide they're going to eat dinner. And they really want a nice, quiet little dinner. He's on sabbatical from where he's been teaching and and... As they sit down and they're enjoying their meal, they see this... Um Probably the best word for him would be Silver Fox, this guy in his late 60s, early 70s with this beautiful mane of lustrous silver hair who's going from table to table all throughout the restaurant and sort of glad-handing everyone, you know, sort of stopping by. He kind of looks like a politician, you know, sort of saying hello and chit-chatting. And Fred Craddock and his wife are saying, we, we really don't want this. We just want a nice, quiet dinner on vacation. We don't want this person to come over and talk to us. And so Fred Craddock is really, he prepares very well because, you know, inevitably it's going to happen. inevitably this guy's going to come to their table. And he does. He stops by, and he says, introduces himself, and they say hello, and then he starts, and he said, so tell me, what do you do for a living? And Fred Craddock is prepared for this. He said, I teach homiletics. Now, very few people know what it is to teach homiletics, and the guy immediately responds, oh, you teach preachers, uh, preachers how to preach, do you? And he said, okay, there goes my quiet dinner. Do I have a story about preachers for you? And with that, uninvited, he pulls up a chair, turns it around, sits down, and let me tell you my story. Fred Craddock's like, uh, I was born not far from here, he said, on the mountains just on the other side of this ridge. I grew up about 50 years ago in this area. He said, the thing about how I felt when I grew up is that I never knew my father. I had no idea who my father was. And in a small town where everyone tended to know your business, it made me very, very uncomfortable because most people in the town had a word for me. I was the bastard. I was the son who never knew his father. Sometimes I could feel people's eyes upon me in a store. When my mom would send me into town for groceries. I could feel almost people, their eyes boring into me. Asking the question. Whose boy is he? Whose son is he? There's the bastard. He said, I, 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 just, I felt so uncomfortable everywhere I went. I felt like I did not belong. So there's one place, however, where I felt good about myself for about an hour at a time. He said they had this new young minister who came into town. And he gave these sermons where he really made me feel good about myself. I would sit there and I would listen to him and I feel like, OK, I'm not so bad for this time. I'm not the bastard. I feel pretty decent about who I am. And the thing was, I never wanted people to see me in church. So I would arrive late and I'd leave early and I'd sit in the back and I never give anyone an opportunity to say, oh, there's the bastard. In church. But one day. Something the minister said. In the sermon. I was stuck thinking about it. Afterward. And then I recognized. My opportunity to sneak out was gone. Everyone had clustered around. The back exit way. And if I was going to leave with them. They all were going to see me in church. And I was really panicked. And all of a sudden I saw that there was another. Exit off to the side. And I went over trying to sneak out. And I felt. This arm. This arm this hand that locked right down on my shoulder. I felt myself sink. This is it, I'm caught. And I turned around with this hand still on my arm, and who was looking down at me but this minister. And he said words that just made my heart sink. He said, whose boy are you? Whose boy are you? And I thought to myself, great. Another place where I'm not safe. Another person who will know me is the bastard. Another place I can't go. And he took his hand off my shoulder. And he broke into this huge smile. And he said, I see it. I see the family resemblance now. I see whose boy you are. You are a child of God. Now, go and claim your inheritance. And the old man back at the table telling the story grew very, very quiet for a moment. almost looked as if he had a tear in his eye. And he said, those were the most important words that anyone has ever spoken to me. And I thank you for listening. And he got up and walked away. And by this point, Fred Craddock is like, gee, this is preaching gold. You know, I'm, I to—I got to ask, who is he? Like, you know, who is this guy? And he said, you know, I, I never got your name. I forgot your name. Sorry, please tell me what your name is. And, and the old silver fox, before he moved on, said, my name is Matt Hooper. And Fred Craddock turned to his wife, and he said, I remember a story my dad told me that the people of Tennessee had twice elected a man named Hooper, a man who grew up not knowing who his father was. To be their governor. Now. That story may be apocryphal. But I'm going to say it's true. Because it is true. And it reminds not just him in the story. But all of us. Of who we are and who we can be. And what our inheritance is. Simply because we are alive. There's a reason that I repeat this story. And we'll go on repeating it probably every 12 to 18 months. So if you're here at that point in the future. Just look surprised when I do it again. I would say that the most important lessons we learn in this life, the most important words that we hear in this life, are what we hear regularly and over and over again. It's why I hope that the people who love us and the people who we love, that we don't just tell them, eh, maybe once every five years, hey, I love you. It is a reason that spiritual practice, as we encourage people within Wellsprings, is supposed to be an everyday opportunity To deepen and to connect ourselves again to our spiritual source and to ourselves. The resonant meaning in our deepest relationship comes from being over and over again affirmed in these rituals. That in these relationships our very lives are being created. So in this message series I'm doing now that I started before Easter about the faith of the future, the faith of the future is about relationships, about relationships of depth and meaning and purpose, not because this is in any way a new idea. It's the oldest idea there is even before we called things ideas as human beings. It is because relationship is at the heart of reality itself. Because wherever we see life coming forth, wherever we see life being birthed, we know that it is coming forth from other Life. Wherever we see people countering oppression, abuses of power or injustice, we see people standing together on the side of love together because none of us is big enough that we can do this work all on our own. And because wherever we see people thriving, wherever we see people growing, we know that there are a whole range of people around and back on the side surrounding that particular person or people because they are are growing because it takes teachers and leaders and mentors and listeners and speakers to bring forth life from our lives. We also know the truth of relationship in our lives in its absence when there is loneliness or isolation or alienation. We can hear it even in a sort of funny throwaway line if you've ever seen the movie Fight Club or ever read the book. The character in there who's a picture of a modern American male who thinks he has everything together and nothing at all together. I mean, a guy so desperate for fellowship that he attends cancer recovery groups and 12-step groups just so he can feel something real, even though he's not sick and he's not an addict. He has devised what he calls wittily, in a way that also hides his despair that someone else sees through, single-serving friends. Single-serving friends like back there on that table. Single-serving little coffee mates that we pour and we are done with and discarded. Single-serving friends that do not in any way fill his soul and cannot fill our souls. Single-serving friends who are not really, of course, friends at all. I hear the voice of lack of trust, of defensiveness. And a guy I went to boarding school with posting on his Facebook page this past week these words when your supervisor says to watch out for a coworker because that coworker may be out to get you you stand up and you take notice i don't know if i can completely trust anyone at my shop but i do know i do feel that people act in their own self interest ladies and gentlemen corporate america now I know not all corporations are like this. and Sometimes schools are like this. Sometimes spiritual communities are like this. Sometimes there is that feeling that unless we're guarded, unless we're defended, unless we feel that really there's not anyone there we can trust, well, then that's the only way we can ensure our survival. And in fact, some people do have to live this way. Some people physically have to go around protecting themselves all the time because if they let down their guard their vulnerability will be exploited by those around them. So whether we are acculturated to have to do this, or whether we have to do this for our survival, one thing is true. That a truly defended life, an armored life, a life that says, don't come too close, this can never be a thriving, flourishing life. There's a book I want to show you right now, a cover This book, it's called happiness, a guide to life's most important. And I totally forgot what that was and I can't read it now. So I think it's a guide to life's most important skill or gift. Just trust me on it. I know the guy who wrote it. His name is Matthew Ricard. Matthew Ricard, who doesn't, didn't start out life with probably the greatest profile that you would think to talk or expound about happiness, he was the son of a famous French philosopher. You don't think of French philosophers as real happy-go-lucky kinds. Now, Matthew Ricard has been described by numerous people as perhaps the happiest person walking this earth right now. Matthew Ricard is a Amazing guy. He's an amazing photographer. He got his PhD in the late 60s from the prestigious Pasteur Institute in cellular genetics. This is a really, really bright guy. And then just as his career as a scientist was getting started, he decided that he was going to become a Tibetan Buddhist monk. And that is who he is now. He is one of His Holiness, the Dalai Lama's primary French translators. Whenever the Dalai Lama comes to Paris, it is Mathieu Ricard who is letting people know what the Dalai Lama is saying. The reason I love this book, Happiness, so much is because for me it brings back, it brings to home with ancient spiritualities and also the most modern of understanding of science of the ways in which we are designed to grow and flourish in this life. Happiness is not something that we seek far off. Happiness is something that he invites us to cultivate right here and right now and encourages us through some very specific ways. He calls at one point this Western idea, which has its secular versions of original sin, a really curious idea that is not worldwide. This idea that somehow we are born depraved. We are born inherently broken. He said we are not born to be hostile to each other naturally, although, as we can often see in the world, that is often the case. And yes, there are secular versions of this. People who reject all other forms of dogmatism. Like a friend of mine years ago, a friend of mine who, when I told him I was going to seminary, literally thought I was throwing my life away. thought this was the stupidest decision one person could make. And I said, well, tell me something that you can affirm about religion. And this guy was really hard-ed cynical. Very funny, very, very bright, but really a hard-ed cynic right at, 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 at the very core of his being. I hope he's changed since then, but I haven't seen him in a long time. And he said, well, he thought about it for a little bit. He said, to me, the only verifiable doctrine of Christianity is original sin. When he looks around the world, he sees proof for original sin, the fact that we are basically just really, really crappy. He sees proof of that wherever he would look. I mean, sometimes this even falls itself into our, we talk about our science. We talk about selfish genes that are only out for themselves in order to propagate themselves. We talk about a certain understanding of Darwinism that is the survival of the fittest. And the fittest equals most egocentric most callous to other people, most egocentric, most strong, most offended. As if at the very heart of our genetic code, as if we can imagine that we are all Donald Trump. We can imagine that's that kind of egocentrism that says, me first all the time. But one of the things that Ricard talks about is that, in fact, that's not who we are. That altruism, that compassion... And kindness and opening ourselves up to the needs and to the life of other people is equated physiologically, biologically, psychologically, mentally, religiously, spiritually. Altruism is equated with happiness, with beneficial outcomes for our lives. There's a movie that just came out that's kind of about the same thing. You know, the, it's called I Am. Any of you see anything about this? It just came out this past week. And I'm going to do a whole uh, Sunday about it this summer when I do movies and spiritual cinema. So it's called the movie I Am. At this point, we're probably not going to play for very long. So get it on DVD or Blu-ray or download it or whatever you want to do with it. But it's a guy named Tom uh, Shadiak who did... Um, Uh, Liar, Liar and sort of feel-good movies, feel-good family movies and very Hollywood kind of story. You know, he earned millions of dollars and then he had a physical and spiritual crisis and he wanted to discover what's it all about. What's it all about? And this is what his answer is. I am. And really what it is, is him going around and talking to many sort of biological, scientific, religious, spiritual authorities throughout the world. Talking about how we are designed to flourish and that can be our future. In this book, Happiness... Matthew Ricard talks about a particular philosopher of science, a guy named Elliot Sober, who has divided a whole bunch of models and experiments that prove a couple different things. One is this. That if we are an altruistic individual focused on the flourishing of other people around us, if we are a basically kind person, but only an individual isolated and on our own and we find ourselves in contact with or surrounded by people who are acting in selfish or violent ways, we will as an individual tend to be taken advantage of. And then from an evolutionary perspective, we would tend to disappear over time. That's the individual case. But here's the thing. He says in his models and his experiments, when groups of altruists, when groups of compassionate and kind people get together, when they get together and cooperate with each other, they have a definitive evolutionary advantage over those groups of people who are selfish. Because groups of people who are selfish will tend to fight amongst themselves and are more likely themselves to disappear from the larger population, whereas the groups of people who are learning to get along with each other and dedicated to that are likely to thrive. This is my hope for the faith of the future, both here at Wellsprings and everywhere, is that it will be all about the survival of the kindest, the survival of those who are most compassionate, not the most egocentric, not necessarily the most strong in the sense that I am strong and I get things done, but in the sense of those people who are committed to their own flourishing and to the flourishing of other people. Because the truth is, in our lives, we all know this. It's not just my friend from 15 or 20 years ago who has reason to be cynical. We can put together all the data points we want, proving to us that cynicism and skepticism about the human enterprise is the right way to go through life. Many of us know already in many different ways why not to trust, and why we shouldn't trust, and why it's smart not to trust. We can live that way if we choose to. But that will leave a certain part of our lives never engaged. There's a bolder choice, a deeper choice, a more relational choice, and it is sometimes spoken from some of the greatest prophets of humanity who have seen the worst of our kind and still can affirm who we are. We hear it even in Anne Frank's justifiably famous words. Perhaps some of you know these by heart, that I believe that in spite of everything that people are basically good. She didn't write that to be a Hallmark card. She wrote that because she believed it in spite of everything, that she refused the choice to make herself cynical and armor her heart. This life-affirming kind of spirituality will not promise us escape clauses from creation. It will not promise us escape clauses from creation. It offers us something better, which is an entrance ticket into the very heart of life. In spiritual community, those spiritual communities that will thrive in the future, and I believe Wellsprings will be one of them, we can gain deeper and regular sustained practice into the ways of creating love and trust and compassion. To know what it is, to really understand what Pima Shodron, who's a Buddhist teacher that I absolutely love, and I know some of you like her writings very much as well too, that she said there is a misunderstanding that lies at the heart of the spiritual quest. That she said for many people it is assumed that it is always upward and upward and upward, as if we would get to the top of the mountain peak and everything would be clear there and all our lives would be figured out. But she says the thing is life is not up there at the mountain top, at the peak Life, instead of up, up, and away, at its deepest level is found down and in. As if we inverted that mountain peak and followed it all the way down, all the way into the very heart of the heart of our lives and all life. And find, in a beautiful phrase she says there, the healing waters of love, of compassion, that will not die. Mature spirituality, flourishing spirituality, is not about Getting high. Not even in good ways. I mean, I I, I stand as someone who has had meaningful moments. That's what they are, moments. Moments of such complete self-transcendence that they literally changed how I looked at the world. But I can number them on one hand. Powerful moments of transcendence. Some of which, at that time in my life, I was too completely immature to actually integrate into my life. And so what they were was great stories I could tell. But they didn't mean anything in how I operated day to day. Just like in that old Seinfeld episode, if you remember it, we cannot skip steps. We cannot, if we truly aspire to grow deeper, wiser in this life, cannot skip the steps of learning how to relate to our brothers and our sisters in meaningful ways. So much of the religious life, yes, the spiritual life, is about that vertical dimension, that dimension of transcendence. It's important, but equally as important, and sometimes more important if we want to skip it, is that horizontal dimension, that dimension that equips us to look eye to eye and heart to heart and soul to soul to each other and recognize what proof there is of our spiritual maturity comes in how we treat each other day to day, day in, day out. This struggle not to want to focus on the mountaintop, but to remember to look each other eye to eye and to be present is a very old challenge in all kinds of spiritual communities. There's a great little line in the, the epistle of First John in the Christian scriptures when no doubt they were having these problems. People who had experienced deep spiritual truth and yet something was missing. And so the writer said, if there are some people and they proclaim to love God, but they hate their brother or they hate their sisters, they are lying. For if they hate their brothers and they hate their sisters that they have seen, how can they love God whom they have not seen? The modern teacher, Jack Cornfield breaks it down even more wonderfully. He says point blank, and I agree with him, all spiritual teachings are in vain if we cannot love. All spiritual teachings are in vain if we cannot love. Faith must ask us, Sometimes difficultly to build those bridges of peace, love and understanding as we sing. So many Sundays. It's one of our core beliefs here at Wellsprings that we believe that each of us yearns for connection with each other and with the sacred. Our freedom reaches its fulfillment in connection with each other. What I understand this to mean is that I and the I that is you all of us that is the I. I will not be me until me can fully experience the we and the me needs the we and the we is also in search of the me. Me. A couple weeks ago. When I talked about the faith of the future being formational, the regular daily practices that form our lives and shape our lives and bring out from within us what that great Unitarian teacher, William Murray Channing said over 150 years ago that we were born with this likeness of God, that we were born with the likeness of the holy. That formational future I described as something going well beyond just Sunday mornings, but an opportunity to grow all throughout the days of the week. I have no idea what this place looks like, and I think I called called it the Wellspring Center for Spirituality and Practice. I have no idea if that's going to be the name. The vision is the important thing at this point. And I saw prayer groups and yoga groups and meditation groups and mindfulness groups and sustainability groups and justice-seeking and creating groups and grief groups and recovery groups, all groups of people working together to bring out that deep likeness of the holy that is within us. In some ways, I related it to a modern monastic community. Save, of course, don't get worried here for the celibacy part. This opportunity for people to work with trusted guides and leaders and mentor people who are worthy of trust. And that this is what will make the future of Wellsprings distinctive. That there are many places to go and take great individual classes. Just take a class, go there, that's fine. Great places to do that. But that what we might offer the world would be something more akin to the deep practice of spiritual direction. Saying, okay, we don't just want to offer you a class. We are going to have the opportunity to grow with you, alongside you, and offer you people who you can do this work with deeply. More than just taking and learning a specific technique. It is people who are invested in each other over time who work to make good on the promise of our flourishing. This is where we learn in this work to be both honest and to have true humility. Another thing that Matthew Ricard quotes in his book Happiness is that he says there are some Tibetan sages who say that the best teaching is that which unmasks our hidden faults. Unmasks our hidden faults and also our hidden hopes, our hidden hurts and our hidden wholeness. And to do this without any sense of shame... But to do this with that basic everyday kind of courage that invites us grow, grow beyond the particular persona, whether it's a harmful persona or sometimes a beneficial persona. I mean, a persona is not just that stuff of, hey, I'm here I'm competent. I know exactly what I'm doing, even if I don't. A persona is also like in that first story that we heard from that young kid who had internalized that sense of himself as nothing but the bastard. That was a persona. What that minister asked him to do, remember who you are and remember who you can be. And so, in this yearning and in this churning, in this ability to dig up what is within us, in these aspirations to be better moms and better dads and better partners and better spouses and better friends and better workers and better activists, better people, we can hopefully share in, and I quote from a Tom Cruise movie a little hesitatingly because he's such a jerk, sorry, but Jerry Maguire, which I absolutely love. That great quote. About being in the kinds of relationships in which we can share the things we think but do not say. Those things that we think we cannot share because they sound too unformed and they'll make us sound stupid or make us sound silly. And through that, release our hidden gifts and let the sunshine in and out, expose the shadows to that healing sunlight, and recognize that we all have them. And to recognize that, as Annie Dillard said, the wonderful writer, she said, there are no events but thoughts and the heart's hard turning, the heart's slow learning where to love and whom to love. I want to share a vision with this of you. I keep this in my office. I absolutely love this. Now, I had nothing at all to do with the production of this. This was one of our 2.0 groups, our Listening to Our Lives group, our regular small groups that we do here at Wellsprings. And this was from a group this past fall that I wasn't involved in. I didn't leave this one. Other people led it. Yes, I know there's some people here. Take pride. Yes, you can smile. It's okay. I absolutely love this because I came in the day after they had had their group and they were talking about beloved community. They were talking about being community together. And this was without my consent, but I absolutely love it. It still sits on my wall there, plastered right up where I look straight ahead from my desk. All I know about this because it gave me an opportunity to frame my perspective, is that's a bird's eye view. Those two tops, those two round things right in the center, those are heads and what's reaching out are arms. I love that in this picture there is this web of connection, these webs of connection that brings everything together. I may be completely misinterpreting. You can correct me afterward. That's okay. I love that there is that yin-yang circle, that balance within which there are these two lives reaching out to connect with each other. And that within them, there is that spiral, that infinity, that source of the eternal within each and every one of us. And what it does, it's not just the truth about us individually. It connects us in that sense of that light, that sun that exists between us. That, to me, is the future of faith that is found most deeply in relationship. To me, that is the common ground upon which faith is really created, really nurtured and really shared. It is the place, no less than this, in this picture, you know what I see here? The place where heaven and earth meet and are made real. I mean, what else would a vision be if it's not a place where heaven and earth meet? I mean, come on. This common ground, this opportunity to build a soul and souls together, it does for me bring me back to what real humility means. Humility which shares the same root word as humor and human. An even older word which was not a word when it first was. Humus, which is Latin for the dirt. The common clay of our existence in all creation myths from which we were brought forth. As they say in many funeral liturgies, the ashes to ashes and the dust to dust. That which makes us truly compassionate to each other and companions for each other. It brings me also to... A part of our tradition that I still struggle with, as much as I love Ralph Waldo Emerson, and he's probably the most well-known person in our tradition, probably most famous thing was his essay on self-reliance, which is great. I mean, we all got to learn to be self-reliant. I mean, it's called adolescence. We all got to learn to say, no, I can do it on my own. That's absolutely necessary. And at the same time, self-reliance in and of itself is a recipe for arrested development. (laughs) To say, no, only me. And yet self-reliance is not the end of what Emerson would understand about his life. He had to face the the hardest thing that I think an adult person can face, which is the death of his beloved child Waldo at the age of nine. And perhaps Emerson turned to poetry because there's no philosophical system that he could put into these words. Perhaps his heart opened up and he could recognize a deeper truth And he wrote in this beautiful poem to his dead son. He said, The greater fate that carried thee, it took the largest part of me. The greater fate that carried thee took the largest part of me. Now, I don't think took it and discarded it or took it and buried it I would say, actually, that greater fate that Emerson felt that maybe his self-reliance wanted to deny is that, in fact, it took him out into the very heart of life itself. That he could say with his poetry what he could not with his expansive philosophy. That I need to express something deep and real and true. And that these words have spoken to and for and with countless number of people who have had to face the reality of those greater fates when they hit us right at the center of our hearts. This is the place of true humility that none of us ask for, but eventually all of us will have to understand. That it is ashes to ashes and dust to dust and life to life and heart to heart and eye to eye that allows us to see most clearly, most truly, most deeply, most lovingly that life belongs together. That life ultimately, as it brought us forth, will take us back to that same source. And so in this place of real humility of recognizing and feeling the ground that is under our feet and the ground of being that is within us, if we would recognize this and remember it and mourn it and celebrate it and share it, we would not have to go far to look for heaven. Because it would be here in our midst, and we would be creating it in our undefended, open hearted, open handed way of being. This is not just about the survival of who we are. This is about an invitation for all of us to thrive and for all of us to share, and to know that deep down, yes, as Pima Shodron said, there is that healing water of love that will not die, and from which All of us, every day, are invited to drink. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. Source of these greater fates, may we be carried back into this life. May we recognize the lights and the shadows of our brothers and our sisters. Because these are our own as well. May we recognize that this day, this place, this time is an opportunity to recognize that deep, amazing truth that from each other we are created, for each other we flourish, and together we know the heart of relationship. This day, in our breathing, in our walking, in our being. May we recognize that beating heart within all life, just as surely as we would honor the beating hearts within our own chest. Amen.